0: David Limbaugh is with us today. He is a political commentator and best-selling author whose books include Jesus on Trial, The Emmaus Code, and The Risen Jesus. His new book, co-written with someone named Christine Limbaugh Bloom, is called The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament. That is our topic today. Uh, Welcome, Mr. Limbaugh. Uh, I'll I'll let you mention uh, something about your co-author and that process. And I'll begin, actually, with a, a simple question that dives right into the book. Uh, you begin with Colossians, uh, a letter Paul wrote probably during his imprisonment in Rome. Why start with with the, with this particular book?
1: Okay, the, the first question, uh, if I may, Kristen is my daughter, and I've written... Uh, or previous Christian-themed books, six political books. This is the fifth Christian-themed book, and Kristen, my daughter, has is a very strong Christian, very spirit-filled prayer warrior, and she's inspiring to me uh, in her heart for Christ. And she has written some op-eds, quite a few op-eds for Fox News website and uh, Christian-themed. And so I asked her if she would want to join me in this. I thought it'd be fun to bring her along in this, give her a jump start. Like I've I've been given so many opportunities from other people, my brother and others. And so she jumped at the chance. So we wrote this together. Um, And the reason I and it's been it's been a joyful experience and gratifying that the reason we started Colossians is simply that I'm going through the New Testament book by book. And this is the the next set of letters that we are discussing the first book Jesus on trial and I don't need to promote these I'm just missing the name but but what, but to, for reference was my faith journey and uh, and a Christian apologetic I set out the reasons that ultimately uh, led me to believe intellectually that Jesus was the son of God that the Bible is inspired that Christianity is true that its truth claims are true the next book was the Emmaus code which which set out Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus told the, the people, on, on the guys on the, the Emmaus Road, uh, that he wanted to take them through the Old Testament, show how it all pointed to him, which gives me goosebumps when I think about it. So I went through all of the Old Testament and all the, the, the different scholarship on this and found all the ways that the Old Testament, I'm sure not exhaustively, but as much as I could in a book like this, Uh, pointed to Christ, the prophecies, etc. The next one was the true Jesus, which was a chronological compendium of the Gospels. Uh, All four Gospels, chapter and verse, either stated verbatim or paraphrased, and then providing my insights as a layperson uh, and commentary from all the scholarship from the beginning of Christian history until today. Because I think that uh, and, and the theme of all these, or the idea of all these books for me, is I, once I finally became a believer and realized that, that I was holding in my hands the Word of God, it really excited me. And, and I viewed it with amazing reverence. And I was no longer, I, I wanted to read as much of it as I could and, and inhale it. And so I started reading the Bible a lot and, and reading as much as I could about the Bible and theology. And I wanted a quick way to get into it so I would have a sense of the whole picture of God's redemption story throughout history. And there's really no substitute than just spending the time and doing hard work. But I do think we can help each other. And even though I'm not a trained scholar, biblical scholar, I think that we people who study the Bible, we lay people, have a duty to help other people, inspire them to read it, tell them what we know. Now we have those of us who do take it upon ourselves to teach, have a biblical duty, a higher duty, not to screw it up, because we're talking about the word of God here. And I I don't dare uh, distort the word of God, at least not intentionally or even negligently, without uh, great trepidation. So I'm not on some kind of a mission to prove my view of the gospel or any of this. I try to stay as true to the text as I can. And those scholars that I trust, you know, that, and, and, that I've read so many, and there's some kooks out there. There's some extremists. I, I try to stay mainstream, conservative theologically, but mainstream and not not anything out there, outlandish. And uh, and that's just a matter of discernment. I either have it or I don't. And if I have it, it's from the Holy Spirit. And I'm exceedingly grateful for that. So so that's the deal. Is I, I write about the Bible the, the, and, and verbatim, and then provide insights and, and give give all this commentary. The readers, the lay readers, would never have access to the to the scholarship that I do. They're just not. They could, but they they, they just won't. And yeah. so, it's exciting to me to be able to share that with them. And I have thirty one thousand books on Logos Bible Software. I've got. I mean, I, it's just absurd. I've been accumulating books <laughs> for fifteen years. And it's just a treasure trove of stuff. And you can search it all. Okay, I'm getting off on a tangent. But anyway, that's where I do. And so I want to inspire people to read. So the next book was Jesus is Risen, which is following the Gospels. I cover the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, and the first six of Paul's epistles. Catholics refer to him as St. Paul, I believe, uh, Protestants, and I'm a Protestant as, as the Apostle Paul. So I don't want to be offensive there because it doesn't matter to me. But we cover those uh, books and again verbatim and the scripture pretty much are paraphrased and then try to explain give insights and commentary this book uh, This next book is the final seven of Paul's epistles uh, the prison epistles, which he wrote uh, During his imprisonment most scholars believe in Rome some think he might have been in Coloss, I think or Ephesus I can't remember but mostly think he was in house arrest in Rome and he wrote these letters to the various churches to correct heresies and provide instructions for Christian living and that kind of thing. And then the other three books covered in this, the other three epistles covered in this book uh, were the uh, pastoral epistles, which he wrote to his colleagues and understudies, Timothy and Titus. So that's really why. It's nothing magic except that we're just covering the books in order. Colossians, I don't know if it's the next canonical book, the next book that appeared in the Bible, but it's what most scholars believe is the next chronological book. And so my method throughout these books has been to try to do it chronologically, like I did with the, the Gospels, trying to intermingle them in, in one, and that's a difficult task because there's not total agreement, but to the extent that I could. And then the the, the Acts and then the Paul's epistles, try to put those in what scholars consider chronological to give the reader a sense of history as he's reading. Because we want, this is another thing I want to say, and then I'll shut up because I'm too long-winded. But... I really think that people have the wrong idea. Some people who are not initiated think that the Bible is some abstract book of political, I mean, of theological principles, or they think it's some storybook, collection of stories. It's a combination. It's it tell it it is told these theological principles, these principles of life, are are told through the eyes of human beings. Forty authors written over a period of fifteen hundred years from different. Countries sometimes in different languages, and yet it's all integrated from beginning to end and it's fascinating and it's goosebump orienting oriented that you can see are goose, goosebump inspiring that you can see the the nuggets in the Old Testament that are sprinkled in and they also are in the New Testament. it's like there's no way it could have been a human conspiracy without a time machine. So it's a divine conspiracy with a divine author through human agents. And so all that excites me and so that's that's kind of where we are.
0: All right. In, in Colossians, what are the heresies circulating in the city at this time?
1: I have no idea. I didn't write the book. I need to get my ghostwriter on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll be ahead. Okay. Well, there were there were uh, I first want to say that it's it's kind of alarming that some of these same heresies are still present today which is it's but it's also affirming because paul wrote these letters to the churches these corrective letters to correct the false teachers that were uh, looming about in his churches and deluding the gospel because the gospel loses its life-saving power if it if it's not true to the word so paul couldn't allow these people uh to corrupt the gospel so he uh addressed some of the, the heresies and and some of them were were based on the uh <coughs> the false teachers either underemphasizing or denying Christ's deity or his humanity. And we Christians know that we believe Jesus was fully human and fully d- divine. And it, it he had to have been to perform uh our uh, his, his salvific his salvific uh activities that that would ultimately lead to our a possibility of salvation through faith in him. He had to be fully human, had to be fully divine. If he weren't fully divine, his sinless life wouldn't have been possible. His uh, death on the cross would not have canceled out all the past, present, and future sins of mankind for those with faith in him. So he had to be divine, he had to be human to go through all the indignities of human existence uh, and to suffer, to be persecuted, to be punished, to be ultimately murdered, Uh, and then to uh, be bodily resurrected. All of this was necessary, so it's essential that that Paul didn't allow any deviations from this essential core Christian gospel message. So he would correct them. He did correct them in these letters, and these letters, as we know, survived, and they became part of Scripture, and they're available to us. And so they are our handbook and manual when we face similar uh, heresies. Another uh, example, oh, let me give you an example of those who denied his uh, humanity. The, the Gnostics who really came to life in the second century, there were precursors to the Gnostics. They doubted, uh, they, they denied Christ's humanity because they thought material existence is evil. So he could not have actually been a human being, couldn't have died on the cross. That had to have been an illusion. Or Christ would or God, he would have been evil and he can't be evil so it's an illusion well that that is blasphemous can't be allowed he has to for the reasons I said he has to have been fully human as well as fully divine others at the time and, and through history have denied his deity and we see today uh, for example the Jehovah's Witnesses and I don't know who else deny his divinity and again as as I mentioned off off air I think Jehovah's Witnesses are some of the sweetest, most moral living people in the world. So this is not a personal cut to them. But it is it is important that I say that I we don't agree with them uh, theologically on this. And they, they can't be Christians, according to our definition of Christianity, uh, because they deny de- Jesus's deity. I just said, I don't mean to single them out, but I just happen to know they specifically don't. Yeah. Uh, and uh, other, other uh, heresies, and that Paul specifically addressed are the Judaizers, the, the people who were insisting that there be adherence to Jewish rituals in addition to faith in Jesus for salvation. Paul would say it's okay if you want to do these rituals. It's okay if you want to be circumcised, but don't say that it's necessary for salvation. So he, Paul had to correct these things uh, and Again, we have the we have these books, the living word of God, they're part of the living word of God, and they're for us today to instruct us and to correct us when we're wrong.
0: Paul insists in that letter that in being brutalized and killed by the rulers and authorities, as you put it, Jesus has wholly, quote, disarmed those rulers and triumphs over them. Is that irony just <clears throat> Very difficult for for people in the contemporary world to to accept and and to live out themselves.
1: I I find this. I'm glad you picked up on that because of all the interviews I've I've done, nobody else has mentioned that. In fact, I even forgot about writing it until you just said it. (laughs) Uh, It 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 particularly moves me. There's so many paradoxes in Christianity and so many ironies as you know C.S. Lewis and others have. Talked about. It's just a little bit queer. It's a little bit too odd not to have been true. I just find that so interesting. Nobody would have made this up. That you wouldn't have written the Bible the way it did. The, the biblical writers showing their warts and all, showing their jealousies and pettiness and all that. If you were trying to impress somebody with the perfection of the religion, so it's kind of cool how how that actually lends to its credence rather than and credibility rather than detracts from it. But the, the 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 Jews were expecting a Messiah who would be a military conqueror and who would be a political conqueror and who would finally deliver them from the bonds of the Roman Empire, and instead Christ was the opposite. He was he he allowed himself. I mean, if he's truly God, you have to say he allowed himself to be betrayed, to be murdered, uh, and, and and killed on the cross, and. It would appear superficially then that he had been totally defeated. He came for naught. Yes, the Jews were correct. He He's a false messiah because he didn't do anything. He didn't lift a finger for himself or for anybody else. And he just died and he's gone. But then we know that he was bodily resurrected and he appeared to 500 at one time and different ones at different times. And he is alive, not was alive, is alive and remains alive. And therefore, by dying on the cross, He defeated Satan, sin, and death, which is what this is all about. This wasn't about killing the Romans in in temporal existence. It was about providing a way, an avenue for eternal life, which when you think about it, dwarfs the temporal existence we have. We're talking about compare eternity to my grandfather who lived 104 years on Mm -hmm. earth, which is a long time in, in relative terms. But in eternal, in eternal terms, it's nothing. So Christ gave us, provides us with eternal salvation, those with faith in him. And so he was a conquering Messiah. Now he will also come back and conquer physically in, in, in his second coming. I believe a certain, I mean, I think Orthodox Christianity believes, I don't know what the Catholics believe, I don't purport to know, uh, that he will come back. And uh, so, so there is an aspect to that. That there's there's biblical warrant for thinking that he's going to come physically, but it's a complex thing. He came uh, the first time to die, to overcome death, and the second time to finish what he started and, and establish his forever kingdom on earth, which I think is pretty cool.
0: A few weeks ago, First Things launched the 2022 year-end campaign, which aims to raise $800,000 and 1,200 readers and listeners like you using this campaign to go public against the dominant 21st century media landscape. Let's just call it junk food journalism. Attention-grabbing titles, sensationalistic claims, Manichean moral dichotomies, you know what we're talking about. Such articles might taste good for a moment. They might appeal to our, our lesser natures, but ultimately they leave us profoundly unsatisfied. Resist junk food journalism and put your hand to the plow by contributing to the first things 2022 year-end campaign today. Visit www.firstthings.com backslash donate to make your gift. Thank you. You have more discussion in Colossians about issues such as the worship of angels, which is problematic uh, that Paul notes, and the way in which another issue, the way a proper household is patterned on on the three persons of the Trinity. But let's turn to the next the next one that is the letter to Philemon, who who was that man, and who was this other figure Onesimus?
1: Yes, <clears throat> well, I think the way I heard it pronounced is Philemon, and he was a, a a Christian, and he had a slave Onesimus, however you pronounce that, and he and the slave escaped, and Paul, and then he went to. Paul and Paul encountered him probably in in during house arrest in Rome while he was in prison and He, he I think Paul converted him. He then became a Christian uh, and Paul wrote His colleague his fellow Christian colleague the, the Onesimus former owner Philemon and was encouraging him to accept Philemon back I mean Onesimus back into his fold as a Christian as a brother in Christ and he didn't go so far as to directly ask him to free him, but he kind of did. And he's basically saying, You are, uh, we are brothers in Christ. There is no difference. And this is what's great people that think Christians are bigots. Paul basically says it doesn't matter what skin color we are, what status we are socially, all that's man made artificiality. What we are is brothers in Christ, equal, equally made. Uh, in God's image and, and equal dignity under God and in God's eyes, and so Paul was was urging and imploring uh, Philemon to accept him and I think to free him, and so that's kind of cool because it's a precursor to I no it's not a precursor it is a it was a foundational move to ultimately abolish slavery. Even though Paul didn't address the institution of slavery. He was about spreading the gospel in its incipiency. But but he laid the foundation. And Christians, by the way, are the ones who led the movement, the abolition movement. And it's largely based on the the principles that Paul laid out and that Christ laid out, that we are all equal in God's eyes.
0: Yep. In Ephesians, Paul has to repeat four times that only by faith in Jesus... Uh, not, not, not by works. You must have faith in Jesus. This is the primary course to salvation. Why does he have to say that so many times?
1: Well, you know, I, I think it's the natural human inclination to be prideful. And that's one reason pride is the, the, one of the worst human sins, is we think that we are gods unto ourselves, that we don't need God. And if you think your own works are necessary, then you really do offend the finished work of Christ on the cross. If we could do something to earn our salvation, why would God have made himself a human being and suffered for us uh, and, and do all this if it wasn't necessary? But the fact that he did do it, in addition to providing us salvation, we have access to the kingdom of God as believers, both now and in the hereafter. And really importantly, we can relate. To our Savior on a personal basis. Think about it. The Old Testament is full of statements that you can't look upon God. He's invisible. You can't look upon Him and live. He's pure uh, perfection. And you can't be in His presence. Nobody. Most, I mean, in his, in his direct presence. But I found this fascinating. Once Jesus came as a human being, we can be in his presence because he's one of us as a human. And so we can address him personally. And he also, in, in addition to addressing him in that way, he suffered in every possible way more than we could ever. Now you might say, well, he was never raped or he was never robbed. He was never. No, think about he was fully divine in the Holy Trinity in t- eternal bliss in eternity past. And he decided that they created us, human beings, knowing. That we would sin, and the only way we could be saved would be for him to come become a human. And yet he created us anyway, and he became a human being, which is analogous to a human being becoming an ant. It's actually worse because God is infinite; we are finite. There's no what he did. There's no comparison. But moreover, not just the status from from going from from fully God to only to fully man and fully God, he. He suffered these things. He he suffered on the cross and before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was sweating blood. Why? Because this isn't some theoretical abstract notion where, okay, Christ dies for our sins, fine. No, he felt the full wrath of God. He had to in real history, in real time. And he felt the separation of God, the Father. It's almost like the Father was mad at him because he was placing all of his wrath directly on Jesus and Jesus hadn't done anything wrong and he said please we know he was suffering I used to think oh I I, why if Jesus is God why wouldn't he take himself off the cross why did he say take this cup of me and so so reasons for my doubt became reasons for my faith later I mean the fact that he did that makes me understand all the more that it's true Christ said please take this cup for me but then he immediately said not my will, but thy will be done. So you see his humanity and his divinity right there together. You see, Christ knows he's got to suffer. If he was God, he, look, he was suffering so much. He knew that he was going to be with the Father in eternity in, in but a few hours. And But he was still suffering. Think about the amount of suffering he knew he was dealing with. And it wasn't enough to abate his suffering. I mean, he really wanted to be relieved from it. Isn't that just fat I don't know, people don't make enough of that to me. It's not just that he sweat blood, but that he but they even talked about it because you know you think okay I'm suffering, but I'm gonna be okay in the next thirty-six hours. Anybody can endure. No, that's how that shows how intense his suffering was. And I, I just can't emphasize that enough. And I don't even know if I answered the question, but that was no. in, in Philippians <laughs> Paul
0: notes that some who spread the gospel do so for, for selfish reasons, but you, you note that Paul doesn't fret too much about that because they are spreading the the gospel. Yeah. Is this a principle that you, you think that one should have, that we shouldn't inquire too much into motives as long as the word is professed
1: accurately? Well, I mean, I've got mixed feelings on that. I think what what paul was saying is it's not that he would condone the improper motives but he's also not going to sweat the small stuff if they effectively spread the gospel and they do it true to its uh true to its form uh they adhere to the truth they adhere to the real gospel and they spread it even if they're improperly mo- motivated he's telling others and telling us don't worry about it. What we're really about is spreading the gospel. Now, if they're obvious hypocrites and they obviously don't believe it, then again, the gospel will be robbed of its converting power and its life changing power. But I think what he was really saying is, uh, yeah, they were they were you know, selfishly motivated a little, but they were on, on the right gospel, so we'll take it. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's really what he was saying. Yeah,
0: he he also tells the Philippians that to suffer for Jesus is a blessing. Do we need to hear more of this message on Sundays?
1: Yeah, I I think that there's too much feel-good religion these days and prosperity gospel, which is as if you just are faithful enough, you'll get rich and all that. And, And God never promised throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament that we would be free from suffering as believers. In fact, he promised that we would suffer. Uh, because we're we're on this we're in, in the world which is controlled by the evil one, and it's a it's a fallen world. And while uh, our faith in God gives us hope and allows us to, to sustain while we're here, we are going to suffer uh, almost to the extent that we have faith and express our faith. Faith. Now that's not you know the United States. We don't we we don't we haven't suffered and experienced the kind of persecution uh, that. Other peoples have throughout history. We've been blessed and we've had Christian liberty. Liberty has been foundational. Very first, there's two clauses in the First Amendment uh, the Free Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clause that are uh, devoted to, are dedicated to to guaranteeing our freedom. So we've been blessed. But I will say, uh, some of that is eroding and we're experiencing an increasing hostility to Christianity. And I wrote a book, uh, Persecution. Uh, in two thousand five, which highlighted and, and explained all the ways that Christians were being persecuted in the United States, but it really wasn't persecution. It's more like discrimination, mistreated, shunned. Now we're talking seventeen years later. it's in full force now. the The gender movements, uh, they're actually trying to ostracize us. They're aggressively doing this. They're trying to change the created order of God. And the, the problem I have with some people on our side, some believers, is that they un, they underestimate the evil nature of this, the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the scenes. And as a result, this le- lukewarm reaction on our part for the sake of getting along is, is doing a disservice to uh, Christ, to the Bible. Because if you if you say these things don't matter, then, then you're really sending a signal that the gospel doesn't matter, that the words of the Bible don't matter, that you can alter them to conform to the culture instead of encouraging the culture to conform to the Word of God. So we, we have to be mindful of that always as Christians and, and, and seek to please God rather than please man. This isn't a popularity contest, and sometimes it's going to take courage. But again, I can't sit here and say, I've been persecuted. I've suffered. No, I... I I'm blessed, you're blessed, I'm sure, but it's happening and it's increasingly happening even in the United States.
0: Yeah, Philippians goes on to, and you discuss the the false teachers uh, and the false teachings that are taking place. But you say at one point we reach, quote, some of the most uplifting verses in the Bible. And there's one that do not be anxious about anything. Now that's not the kind of happiness saccharine, Version because when Paul says that he's not denying suffering, he's not saying suffering won't happen, but don't be anxious about it. Well, what specifically do do you think he means there?
1: Well, you know, it's you you can't, and and this is another example of how the Bible is integrated, and these same ideas are sprinkled throughout. Jesus, you know, you, you don't add a day to your life by by worrying, and and you certainly don't affect your eternal existence by that and your eternal destiny. And he's saying, really, don't be anxious because in the end, it, what, what matters is your relationship with God, your relationship with Christ, and, and look, put it in perspective and have hope. And by the way, and I mentioned this several times in the book, the word hope in, in these translations doesn't mean something that's uncertain. It means a firm reliance on something you know to be true. That is, that faith in Christ will lead to your salvation. So we have that always as our security. And we have the Holy Spirit who seals that confidence within us. So I love those verses because they encourage us not just to to not to be anxious. And we know we can't all, we're still fallen. Even though the Holy Spirit indwells us uh, and we're, we're empowered to combat sin on a daily basis, we also know we're tugged by the temptations of the flesh and by the fall and and the rest of it. Uh, that. It's hard to live up to the things. It's almost impossible to live up to the standards Christ set out in the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't mean they're not standards that we ought to live up to. And the, and our, our inability to perfectly live up to those doesn't mean we throw out the standard. And which is sometimes the, the political uh, pagan left says, you guys are hypocrites. You You set all these standards up and you are all sinners. We don't deny we're sinners. But we do say that you don't throw out the standard, you have total chaos and disorder when you do, and you you also deny your own spiritual growth. We know we don't have the ability to always be sin-free in this side of eternity, but we 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 rely on the Holy Spirit through the exercise of spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, journaling, fasting, the rest of it, to draw ourselves closer to God and thus less sinful, holier, more sanctified. And so... But but in addition to that do not be anxious clause, I, Philippians 4, 4 through 8, it talks about think of the good things. Think of what is wonderful, pure, noble, true. And, and I love that because it's not just yeah. the power of positive thinking that's unanchored to anything except psychological yeah. suggestion. It's get yourself in a God-Christ frame of mind. Dwell on God not you don't go into meditation and empty your mind you go into meditation and prayer to fill your mind with the glory of Jesus Christ and that draws you to become more Christ-like and so I love that just Philippians 4 I think 4 through 8 it's 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 the power of positive thinking on steroids but not the secular power not the watered-down Christian version of the power of positive thinking not the Norman Vincent Peale but Paul's telling us to be in Christ and and there you you will you will have not necessarily some silly bliss or nirvana and and giggly thing no it's an internal security it's an, it's an eternal assurance that through these these sufferings we know we're going to come out on the other end and we're going to be okay
0: the book is the resurrected jesus the church in the new testament david limbaugh thank you for joining us
1: thank you so much for having me